Welcome to Leading Thinkers, a podcast about leadership in the humanities, humanities and leadership, and how studying the humanities affects leadership practices. Our host is John Esposito, Classics PhD and co-founder of Calion, a nonprofit dedicated to elevating leadership through the humanities. Welcome to another episode of Leading Thinkers. I'm here today with Rosemary Moore. I'm Rosemary, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I am a distinguished associate professor of instruction at the University of Iowa. I have a joint appointment in the classics and history departments, and I teach a range of courses, Greek and Latin, a lot of ancient history courses, including surveys of the ancient world, as well as classes on Roman law and ancient warfare. And we actually are going to sort of, this conversation started with focus on a couple of articles that Rosemary sure. sent me, one about uh-huh. emotional intelligence and leadership with respect yep. particularly to Caesar, mm-hmm. and the other about gender and leadership with respect to uh, Fulvia, who we'll talk about a little bit. Right. But we had sort of an early like warm-up conversation in which a lot of topics came up, including things that are not just scholarly and academic that turn out to be relevant to both of these topics. So if you want to talk maybe a little bit about your own relevant background, Rosemary. Sure. Well, you know, I grew up in Alabama and like a lot of people who end up doing what I'm doing, I really enjoyed school and I wanted to see a different part of the country than where I grew up. And the way I did that was by winning a Navy ROTC scholarship that also allowed me to major in classics, which I I think is pretty remarkable. And so I I got my undergraduate degree at Harvard and finished that in classics. I was able to delay my commissioning for one year where I started at the University of Michigan in classical studies, which is also where I earned my PhD much later, and then spent a little bit over five years on active duty as a United States Naval officer. And in that period, I was the head of a watch team in a system called IUSS, the Integrated Underseas Surveillance System. And this is passive, long-range sonar used to track submarines. And uh, it actually appears in the hunt for Red October, that sort of thing. Jonesy, right? Jonesy, yeah. (laughs) So it used to be highly classified, but, you know, once the Cold War ended, our mission was declassified, and we started to do other things like uh, provide data to people who were researching creatures like whales, hmm. you know. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, so this really is, fun. The, this is you're, you're actually kind of in a situation that used to be more common, I think, among classicists. Okay. It used to be the case that more classicists or people who studied ancient Greek and Roman things in Europe yeah. were likely to be people who had some involvement in the military. Right. Um, this is one of the reasons why often like that the 19th century version of a study of Alexander's tactics is still incredibly valuable because it would be sure. written by a guy like Hans Delbruck, who knows what right. he's talking about. That's a, that's a great point. Yes. Nowadays, most of us in classics do not have such experience and the general lack or like general like sort of division of, let's say, modern America or modern first world countries in great part mm-hmm. into those who have military experience and those who don't is one of the differences between uh, the ancient and the modern world that we Absolutely. often run across. Absolutely. It's a major difference. And I grew up in a family that had minimal military experience. In fact, my father, who was always kind of a rebel, went to Georgia Tech, a land-grant university. And when he was an undergrad there, he had to do some time in ROTC and he actually got kicked out of ROTC. So that tells you a little bit something about that. But, you know, that said, the reason I did this at all uh, was because I wanted to get out of the South and go see a different part of the country, like a lot of people do, you know, 
they, they want to see someplace different from where they grew up. And one of my guidance counselors in high school, a woman, by the way, and this was in 1980s Alabama, was also a commander in the Naval Reserve. And she routinely recommended to students who, you know, had ambitions to look at military academies and to look at ROTC. And so that, that was my path there. And in terms of the military experience and what it gave me, you know, I, I never thought of myself as somebody who was a leader or a doer in the military mold, right? What do you mean by in the military mold? Like, well, um... you know, this, the sort that where I was coming from, like what you see in Top Gun, because that oh. movie came out when, when I was graduating high school or, you know, right. any it's other It's very different from being in the sonar room, I guess, right? Yeah, we'll and see. that's very true, too. But, you know, and there's a lot of things to say about military culture and naval culture in particular. But, uh, you know, for the first time, I was really in a situation because I led a watch team where I was responsible for ensuring other people were doing their jobs well and ideally doing them enthusiastically and working well together because our performance as a team depended on individuals working together as a team, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to do that. Let me ask, I don't know if this is true, but my thought is that naval culture also has an extra discontinuity with the ancient world. That is that modern naval culture comes from 18th century at the earliest. That's absolutely Um, right. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Because there aren't any ships that just go around forever and float independently in in ancient warfare. Ships are transport and short ramming blocking, but not their own entities. But my feeling, though, is that um, ancient philosophers of, let's say, political leadership understood Mm -hmm. the idea of we're all on the same boat. That is, the ship of state metaphor, for example, coming in Plato. Actually, to me, it seems to work better in this post-18th century naval culture where the ships are not just extensions of a land force, but actually have their own individual, the boundary between the end of the ship and the water is extremely strong. That's right. And then everyone inside is extremely perforce on the same team in a way that is more true now, I think, than would have been in in like an ancient trireme, maybe. Yeah, I think that that's very true. And I think that you can also make a good case for the sort of leadership that you have in the modern Navy, it's having a lot of things in common with the other branches of at least the modern U.S. military, as well as, for example, what ideally would happen on campaigns in, for example, the Roman army. And we're not really talking about the the shorter term campaigns that you associate with like the early Republic or a lot of the the archaic period in, in the Greek world, But, you know, campaigns where, you know, for example, those endless campaigns in Spain, where commanders were wintering, overwintering in a camp with their soldiers. Okay, I see. So those are, those long campaigns are kind of like the ocean going vessel. You're surrounded by who knows what for a very long period of time. And your unit or your your group is, has a very strong distinction between it and the bizarre foreign colonial land. That's right. The the boundaries of the Roman military camp, there's watchstanders, you know, they're controlling entry and exit. Ideally, people shouldn't be able to do that without some sort of control from above. And, you know, getting back to the naval metaphor, I wasn't on board a ship for my active duty. I was on a really pretty remote base, actually, in Newfoundland, Canada, where you know, we were fenced off from the local community and you had to go through a security guard uh, to get on the base. You know, what we did was a classified 
sort of activity. And so control of people getting onto the post and off the post was a necessary thing. So naval officers historically have had a lot of authority, you know, to the civilian, a surprising amount of authority in adjudicating problems that happen in the command. You know, for example, people committing crimes or other sorts of infractions. So you're saying like, and this actually may be related to the Caesar paper a little bit, but Mm -hmm. you're talking about situations where someone does something that is against or that is harmful in some way, either it's against military law or it's a conflict. And then right. their superior, even if they're not a judge or something, the superior right. has to deal with it and, and adjudicate. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so the Uniform Code of Military Justice is uh, what's used as our manual. It's a separate uh, code of laws. And there's this actually a separate military justice system. I don't want to get into too much detail, but you know, a commanding officer in U.S. Armed Forces is able to do something called non-judicial punishment. And uh, for example, uh, the, the term for that in the Navy is, is uh, captain's mast. An infraction in the, the Navy would be bringing alcohol on board a naval vessel. And when I was a midshipman training to be an officer, we would go on, on cruises on Navy ships during the summer. And they, they want us to see these sorts of non-judicial punishments happening. And I saw a sailor who brought two wine coolers on board being punished. One of punishments because we were underway was I think seven days of bread and water. Mm. And that's actually on the books still. Oh, okay. So, and, and that sort of authority in the legal areas is necessary, especially in a period without rapid communication. Right. If you're on campaign, you know, right. and this comes up sometimes in Caesar, this is, I think the yeah. level of authority that even a centurion would have, right? That's uh, yeah. probably the lowest level of, I think. I think so. Yeah. And and uh, the case study I wrote this year for Sage was on the mutinies in uh, the first book of Tacitus's uh, Annals. And so centurions have canes, which right. are used for this sort of thing. You know, there's that famous example of the centurion, they nickname, give me another because he keeps breaking his right. canes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a guy that I knew from grad school here, I think his name is Graham Ward, Graham something. But he wrote a dissertation on the centurion, and the oh, right. topic that most interested him was the level of adjudicatory freedom that centurions had. Um, they sure. could make decisions about, and they could beat you to death sometimes, yeah. and yeah. that was part of their authority as in, on campaign, at least. And yeah. of course, there's a strong distinction between being home, in the case of Roman, inside the boundary system, right. like, and being right. on campaign where right. military law is, prevails. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, the situation, though, that we're talking about the, uh, a kind of authority and a kind mm-hmm. of responsibility mm-hmm. that is quite hierarchical. Right? As a person in exposition, right. you just are required to and you can do a lot of things to a person below you because right. you, no one else can. Right. Um, you're, in your Caesar paper, though, you actually talk about a very different sort of leadership or authority. Not that is one that comes solely from uh, your rank, let's say, but the right. term you give it is emotional intelligence or leadership with emotional yeah. intelligence in the context yes. of a military, even the Roman military, which you might think of right. as quite... So that's an interesting idea to talk about emotional intelligence in Roman military, and especially as you do, I think, to talk about the way Caesar portrays it as something that is actually makes you win battles, right? Yes. Yes. So can you talk a little more about? Oh, sure. Yeah, and I think that this was something that I learned really well on while I was on active duty. You know, I remember we would have emergency drills at, at. kind of random intervals because that's that's part of 
military readiness. And I was really struck when people said to me later, thank you for being so calm. That really helps us out. Right. And that made me realize that the emotions that I have and the demeanor that I have during periods of high stress are communicated and not more than that. People look for them. They notice them because they want the general to indicate what to make of this situation. Were these always your subordinates or were they also peers within the hierarchy or? Well, uh, you know, I think in this particular situation, it would be on the watch for, and I was the duty officer. So everybody there was subordinate to me, a number of enlisted ranks, some very senior, you know, definitely the most senior enlisted had more years in the military than I did. And so we're encouraged to look to them for mentorship, right? Okay. And yep. so we would look to them too. How are they reacting in this situation? What will they do, right? And these pr principles of leadership by example, you know, I saw them at work when I would be standing watches, especially during these drills, but that is something that is absolutely drilled into you when you're a midshipman, you know, stay calm and project, project right. what you want people to do. So that's interesting because I guess I can think of, when I think of leadership by example, I usually think not in terms of demeanor, but in terms mm -hmm. of skilled exercise of your yes. responsibilities. So that I too. imitate you because you're better at doing X than I am. Right. But now you're saying also, of course, and this makes sense, I just normally, it's not my first thought is mm -hmm. I imitate you emotionally mm -hmm. too. I will become calm right. when you are in Right. Right. And uh, so that aspect of, of social psychology, I suppose, is something that I think a lot of people do without realizing it necessarily. Hmm. And, and, you know, there's a real trope in this sort of good general that not only does a general have to wear a certain expression, but a good general might also need to deceive hmm. in the case of pulling off different sort of tactics. And deceive their own men. Deceive their own men. That's right. Yeah. To prevent certain types of intelligence from coming out. And that's exactly where, you know, Domitius Ahenobarbus fails because he tries to tell his troops something that's absolutely not true and absolutely not going to happen. And he doesn't have the, the awareness that maybe I shouldn't let this leak through. Right? Well, this, this is interesting you raise this because in your article, you also talk about how it was, or if I understood it correctly, you were saying that it's because the men saw that he was treating his internal group differently, talking to them differently that too. Yes. than the external group. Yeah. And so so yeah. if he were better at deceiving his mm -hmm. soldiers, w would it have worked out better then? Like, even if he were dissimulating, that's where I'm getting what that's, I'm getting from you saying. Yeah, and I think that that is what Caesar is suggesting. Yeah. yeah. And that, that this sort of studied control of one's demeanor, not mm -hmm. only one's actions, but, you know, there's a sort of fluidity between what you're thinking and what your expression is and what you do next, right? And and being able to control that artfully is uh, something Caesar suggests is a ne necessary part. And it's not only Caesar that you see that aspect of, well, in this case, it's dissimulating deception. I think it was Nisbet talking about Aeneas as a general who also deceives who also dissimulates. Right. You mean because he has a personal mission that he's not going to share with his... That he has a personal mission that he's not going to share. And, you know, sometimes, you know, what you're planning 
you want to control who has that information for a lot right. of different reasons. So that's another good point. So independent of the effect it has emotionally on your followers, let's say, right. um, just information access, information leakage, information hiding is one of the yeah. responsibilities of a leader. And for me, yes, that is actually very closely related conceptually to just the general idea of abstraction. In general, okay. the power of abstraction is deciding what information to discard at a particular moment. Okay. What information to pay attention to at a oh, particular moment. Yeah. Right. So I, I do think of this aspect of leadership as being able to build abstractions such that almost like cell membranes, like mm -hmm. um, I have a bubble around this area of people who know things and mm -hmm. certain information will be allowed in and out of the pores, right. other information will not be. Right. But if you do this poorly, you'll end up, of course, if, if the membrane is not correctly semi-permeable, right. then you're going to end up dying because you have no relation with the environment in hmm. one direction. Or if it's done a little bit not aggressively enough, then mm -hmm. you're not really serving any special role. You haven't been able to concentrate right. Right. whatever you know, excellence or judgment or experience or whatever it is you have here. There's an yeah. organic metaphor. It's not a Caesarean one. It's maybe a Greek one instead of a Roman one. That yeah, know. that feels very Greek. But it, yeah, uh, yeah I, interesting. I, I, I like that. It's not something that I would have connected, you know. Well, I, I mean, I'll give you a little bit of my, like the reveal here is that um, as a, as a yeah. computer programmer, control okay. over information access is very important when you're building complex yeah. systems. Sure. Because, sure. you know, I, I, so you know this. So like if you make everything visible to everything else and alterable by everything else, yeah. then you will never be able to reason about how the program will actually run. Okay. And you'll also never be able to really verify that it is designed, that it, to, that its actual design is what you thought the design was when you originally hmm. created it. Hmm. So, so it's uh, controlling the system, in other words. It's controlling the system yeah. by controlling information access across parts of the system. Okay. So what it allows you to do is it allows you to build bigger systems than you have conceived okay. and yet know that your part is going to do what it's going to do within certain constraints. Right. And that problem, the problem of... I've always thought that um, one of the most incredible things about a general, let's say, pretty yeah. like a high-ranking military officer, is that they are controlling systems that are far more yes. complex than they have actually yeah. conceived. Yeah. But they can be effective at this. And yeah. one thing that strikes me reading Caesar is that mm -hmm. he seems to put a lot of, he doesn't give you nearly as much of his right. own thought process as you might like. He says, yeah. and then Caesar did this. And of right. course, it turned out well. Yeah. But in the places where he does give his thought process, um, it's semi-often has to do with this emotional intelligence. I'll give you another yeah. example besides yours. Yeah. Um, when, right before Pharsalus, I think um, Caesar mm -hmm. says, Pompey did not understand how important it was that to right. men feel the, the, the rush of the trumpet or something specific like right. that. Yeah. But Caesar it's, did. Right? Yeah, I just, in that paper you sent me, I, I, I had just looked at that passage, you know, the, the Caesar soldiers go as soon as that trumpet goes, and but Pompey's, Pompey holds his forces back and Caesar's soldiers are like, we know where to stop halfway between these two forces and that, and yeah, and yeah Pompey is absolutely making a foolish decision by not allowing the, the, the soldiers to respond as they're trained, but also respond with that sort of emotional being caught up into in it as well. Right. I, now I don't remember exactly, but I, I feel like Caesar says something like natura, like by nature or something like that. I or, think you're right. Yeah. Um, there's some right. thing that makes you want to burst forward and Caesar has leveraged that by right. using the trumpets and yes. Pompey yes. and Caesar criticizes Pompey. Pompey foolishly did not. Right. So that's a different kind of emotional intelligence, but it is, yeah. and it's, but it's leverage, right? It's like, I'm going to poke right. you in the right way. And then it's your mm -hmm. nature. Right. Exactly. To go. Exactly. You're trained yeah. to go this way. 
Roman soldiers are always supposed to move forward anyway, right? right. <laughs> they are supposed to keep on going. So what he is doing is kind of queuing, queuing this, this uh, something that's trained that they know how to do intellectually, but they also have a trained emotional response to. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about, you know, going back to your computer programming, creating a complex system, that actually causes me to connect another aspect of Roman generalship. That is, you know, generals and leaders in general want to take in all the relevant information they can in order to make correct decisions. So while the the general controls the leakage, the general also is responsible. And I think this is this is certainly how I felt when I was in the military. It's also how I feel when I'm working with TAs or, or students. You know, I want to develop some sort of rapport so that subordinates in the military case or students or TAs will communicate what is necessary instead of what they think I want to hear. Right, right. And as we talked about, of course, there's often or can be a little bit of a tension yeah. here between the fact yeah. that. Oh, sure. You're my superior, and so I want to please you in order for me to get a salary. Right. And you're my superior who has a responsibility that requires me to provide maximal information to you. And as a teacher, you run across this at a much smaller scale, which, as you said before, has much lower stakes. But I can completely understand why my students would feel like I can't think openly in this class because I have to please the teacher because I have to get a good Is it safe? Is it safe to say something that that might not be pleasing to this person? And for and, Caesar, I, I think he tries to make sure that you think, or that his men think that it is. Well, I, I don't know about safe to communicate with him, but at least mm-hmm. he puts effort into being one of the guys, trying yes. to separate the distance. Oh, sure. And you talking to people sure. about how the lack of a um, a kind of a very formal officer corps, let's say, in a sort of a Prussian style in the Roman yeah. military, yeah. makes it much easier for that general to be connected with his men. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if Caesar himself said this, but I remember in much later source Suetonius, which is not super reliable, but he does make a point mm-hmm. of the image of Caesar as just some guy who sleeps you know, outdoors with his men, oh, as opposed absolutely. to, let's say, Augustus. Absolutely. Uh, right. Fl- you know, far away. Yeah. Well, you know, after the Civil War, it's like, let's, yeah. let's, let's calm this down a little bit, you know? Yeah. So don't, don't call your soldiers comilitones, right? Uh, whereas right. that's yeah. something that Pompey was happy to do, you know? So this sense of identifying that, you know, Mark Antony does it, Marius does it, and today it's like you can be friendly but not familiar is a phrase I heard a lot in, in the Navy. That is, you know, you should know these people, but there needs to be a disconnection between you still need to let the system and the hierarchy be in charge, you know? So can you talk a little bit about how you might even do that? I'll, like in the case of Caesar, the one example I gave yeah. was he is very respected He's yeah. a really commander, but he, he but he sleeps on the floor right. outside with his men. Yeah. A, a sort of tricky or like circumventing way to do this is mm-hmm. you might think of in Henry V when Henry when mm-hmm. Harry disguises himself so he can hang right. out with his men. And yeah. that's that's one of those deceptions that you were talking about a little bit while ago, right? That that's right. He has to yeah. lie to yeah. his men to get their honest opinions. Right. How, yeah, how do, again just... from your own experience? How, how do you, and I'll, let me give one final example for me as a teacher. Yeah is I will actually, in order to get students to decouple mm-hmm. their desire for a good grade, which is completely rational. Of course, yeah. And their ability to speak openly is I will actually promise, and I do this, that there won't be anything on any test that isn't in a study guide. So I give them these huge yeah. study guides. Yeah. So meanwhile, they can just pay attention to stuff. And, and that really 
takes a lot of that decoupling. It's not dishonesty, but it's deliberate manipulation on my part, basically. Oh yeah, I, I do I do that too. I, I think that's uh, you know give, giving them the uh, a sense of control about what they can expect. So it's, a sense of control like that makes sense. Yeah, that okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's part of it. I something that we might do. For example, you might carpool with somebody who's subordinate, but you still wouldn't address each other by first name. Huh, okay. And You're talking about in, in the Navy? In the, in, in, in the modern military, military. yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's, you know, just a personal example. But in terms of what generals like Marius and Caesar are, are doing, they're sharing experiences without necessarily bonding or making friends with specific people in that group. You know, just sharing a meal with a group of people creates... A, a greater feeling of community, you know, the sense of sharing burdens, sharing what's unpleasant, while, and this is something I wrote about in my dissertation, while at the same time being appreciably better in an example, uh -huh. <laughs> something that can help there too. So, you know, Caesar makes sure that at certain times, at least, you know, he is not on horseback when the, the army is on the march. He also will, you know, like eat bread and olives, sleep in these difficult conditions with them. The sense that he knows what the soldiers are about and, you know, accounts for that mm -hmm. while expecting, you know, a very high standard of, of behavior. Because when he is eating bread and olives, for example, which is really, you know, plain everyday sort of meal, he is setting an upper limit for what soldiers themselves can do. And, uh, you know, in terms of a trope of things have gone very bad in a command, for example, uh, Numantia, right? Um, when Scipio Emilianus comes in and he's in, he goes into the camp and it's like, there's, there's slaves there giving massages, people are eating casseroles and, you know, just all kinds of all kinds of stuff and then he sweeps it clean and then he behaves in a way that sets the standard creates a sense of common identity and also creates an upper limit for what uh, soldiers can do so you know there's multifaceted i like that idea of the upper limit because i guess you can tell me if this is wrong but it seems to me that one of the and this is more of this is both a Greek and a Roman critique, but one of the mm -hmm. intuitive critiques of luxury in war mm -hmm. is that you're sort of redirecting your desire towards something right. that is not destroying the enemy or expanding or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. And this, we, we talked a little bit about this, this inborn desire that Caesar thinks people have to just, mm -hmm. or are trained, you were saying, to do, to yeah. explode in combat and stretch yeah. to the right part of the field and so forth. Yeah. Um, my own limited experience in like, business leadership and technical leadership mm -hmm. is that if people people are quite capable of having very sort of segregated boxes of desire. Mm -hmm. um, and I had mm -hmm. some employees that I remember who actually had zero interest whatsoever in their job, in the work. They wanted okay. to their lawyer, which was fine, but they really wanted to do something else. Sure. And the only way that I could redirect, could actually make them desire to do their work at all, was mm -hmm. by in my own head carefully thinking through how their actual job had something to do with the thing that wasn't their actual job that they really wanted. Okay. Now, in my mind... It would have been better if they just quit, but yeah. they didn't have another job lined up, so that's fine. Right, right. That made me, as a, I didn't do a good job of this, but as a, as a manager, I guess there was a tension between pushing them to do yeah. the best of, at the work, which yeah. I knew they kind of wouldn't, and pushing them to be their best. Mm -hmm. 
in such a way that they still did the work mm -hmm. kind of as a side yeah. effect. Right? Yeah. I, I don't know. If yeah. There's, there's overlap there and there's sort of, yeah, <laughs> it flows into their job performance. If, if you're encouraging them to, like you say, be at their best. Well, and it was reminding yeah. me of what you were saying about different reasons for joining the military, right? Mm -hmm. If you have compulsory military service, that's one reason. Another reason. Yeah. So that would be a reason, but your own desire for what you get out of it might right. be something else than just serving right. your country, right? Yeah. You mentioned a yeah. lot of people will join the military just to see the world, right. right? which is not the same as, but then some people might join the military because they want to avenge 9-11, let's say, right? Sure. Or because sure. they want to protect Poland or, or whatever, right? Yeah. These are all very, very different. And mm -hmm. one thing I'm familiar with only from secondary literature is mm -hmm. how strong a difference there is in the motivational structure of an all-volunteer force, yeah. the AVF as they call it, Yep. versus any kind of draft, even if it's not a universal draft, Yeah, that people who come in militaries have to deal with that. In the case of different ancient armies, let's say, mm -hmm. there were also hugely different such motivations. Caesar, in, in right. the two works you're talking about, he's, there's one which yeah. is expansion to a foreign land, maybe we want adventure, right. maybe. Right. But then there's also a civil war, and in that case, the motivation right. has to be very different because you're marching on Rome, literally, right? right? You're, you're right. killing your friends. Right. So a leader will have to negotiate. Caesar himself manages to somehow get his men, or according to himself, yeah. To fight for completely different reasons. Yeah. Even when it's a civil war. And yeah. in the, the, the talk that I sent you, I kind of, I'm trying to figure mm -hmm. out how right. his military command style relates yeah. to his being, trying to convince his men and his readers that it's okay to be in a civil sure. war. Sure. Because you're not sure. fighting for Rome exactly at that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Then that, that's something that I'm, I'm thinking through after reading your paper as well in a civil war, every, active command is also by its nature a political mm -hmm. act right and a negative and, political act uh, yeah yeah and and so you know in the case of look at all these senators including Hanna Barbas fouling up and soldiers choosing you know to disown that leadership and instead see here you have this much more much better much more right alternative in caesar Apparently, or we're so yeah. yeah. <laughs> Caesar wants you to you to think, and uh, you know, following that up with uh, what happens in Spain, where where Caesar manages to have soldiers fraternize, and then the commanders respond either with just sort of displays of pity me, pity me, and then finally with force. You know, yeah. this is this is how his leadership is true Roman Republican core. Is is even more to the point than Pompey's, right? Yeah, yeah I see what you're. Yeah, yeah. All right. So then, so we have talked now about some of the ways besides just being in charge. Let's say having mm -hmm. an official position in a military yeah. context, in a Roman military context, in the modern military context, people can lead effectively. We talked about some information hiding, and we talked about a lot of things that are kind of unofficial or almost not on the surface obvious, including mm -hmm. feelings, just conveying your manner and stuff. The other paper that you sent me was about another sort of very unofficial sort of leadership. It was about right. um, a, a woman in ancient Rome who doesn't really right. have nearly as much legal positioning right. or standing at all as, as men, right. yeah. who nevertheless becomes hugely important, is recognized as yeah. hugely important, is yeah. like aggressively criticized for yes. whatever reason, her importance in great part. Yeah. And it's not just because of her relationship with like one dude, as you said, sometimes right. happens. Yeah. Um, it seems to be her in relationship with many people and um, doing yes. it on her own. Yes. Um, as her own separate figure. So maybe we can switch gears a little bit and talk about this different, right. completely different kind of leadership independent of rank, yeah. um, which is this sort of female leadership. And that's 
your paper was about ancient Rome. Um, I'm interested mm -hmm. to see if this is relevant at all to your experience in the modern military, or if this is if the military is actually like gender blind at this point, or oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one day perhaps, right? And and things have changed so much. Yeah, there are a lot of aspects of military culture that I found to be very positive and have uh, shaped how I teach, for example. But yes, women in the military in the early 90s, this was the area, era of tailhook. The area that I was in is one where there are more women involved than in other parts of the Navy. So in some ways, the difficulty that a female officer might have, let's, let's say she's serving on a ship, would not happen as frequently. But in, when you say the area, you mean like in intelligence or like sonar stuff? Uh, yeah, or? the IUSS community that okay. I was part of, as, as well as naval intelligence. Oh, that's and, interesting. Uh, yeah. The, was there any reason for that that you know of? Like just, so I, I'm asking because, so I've heard that in sport, this is not what you're talking about, but in sports mm -hmm. shooting, mm -hmm. women do better than men overall. And I've heard that for that reason, you would expect that there would be many more female snipers in military than there are. And the only reason there right. aren't are because of cultural reasons. Yeah. But as sports shooters, women are extremely good, apparently. Wow. So I, I knew a guy who was a competitive sports shooter. He was like, it's not fair. Women are like, can you give these, all these reasons why women are physically superior to men at pulling a gun trigger? Wow. <laughs> I don't know if it was true, but is there, well, so is there any, like, was it a cultural reason? Why do you think, um, or is there like a, maybe some, women sometimes are educated differently that leads to specifically undersea things or was it a culture of oh yeah early technology for example in the military it was uh, you know that that area was the reason i chose that community it was very difficult to be stationed on a ship in in the early 90s the only ships that women could be stationed on were non-combat ships so supply ships that sorts of thing and I was also thinking I would like to go back to graduate school, but, you know, but I wasn't entirely sure. And I knew that I didn't want to be an admin, which is where a lot of women would end up. You know, the naval officers do think of themselves as warriors. There's definitely a warrior culture at work in there. And what defines pure warrior, if you want to say that, is being in a more operational field, aviation submarines, places right. that because of combat restrictions, women at that point could not serve, though these communities are a lot more open to them. And I wanted to do something that was operational, as operational as I could get. And that's, that was what it was, you know, IUSS. So, oh, so you're saying that you wanted a sort of operational. Yeah, to I do, wanted to be operational. But you couldn't actually be on a submarine because women right. were not allowed on submarines or right. combat right. ships. Yeah, you know, if I had to do it over again during Bill Clinton's presidencies when women were allowed to serve on combat ships, I might rather have done that. You know, midshipmen, all of us did cruises on naval ships. And so, like, one of those was on the aircraft carrier Enterprise. So, oh, cool. The first nuclear great. carrier, right? Yeah. 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 First, first nuclear power uh, aircraft carrier. And we were underway for about a month. And it was, it was really fun. So, that is cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's but, another uh, example of something that doesn't have any ancient parallel until right and like sailing ships in the 18th 19th century that can kind of go yeah. on perpetually until you run out of food that's right suddenly yeah. you have nuclear then you can do it again even that right both diesel in between right but that still feels like a very good very strong metaphor for leading a state or an army which is who mm -hmm. knows how long we're going to be out here 
Right. The system is not right. going to collapse. It's us that are right. going to fall apart if, yeah. we, if it happens. Yeah. And so the leader is responsible for maintaining that decision, that community, maintaining what holds it together and leading it for whatever goal there is. And, you know, for the Romans, that means moving a lot. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. Well, and actually you're, you're bringing up the responsibility to keep the community together. This is something that is often nowadays people talk about this as uncompensated labor that women tend to perform. Right. Right. In many societies, holding communities together. And Romans mm-hmm. seem to think of this as a thing that women do right. within households, at least. But of course, Fulvia in this part is acting outside of a single household. She's acting at the right. state level. Right. As it right. Essentially. Yeah. Through the, Authority, I think, kind of bolstered by her social rank, but in particular because she is seen as a proxy for Mark Antony, along with his brother Lucius. So, say more about the proxy kind of idea. We can even talk about some, you know, Roman women being named sure. from their families, but even the idea of the Roman woman as a proxy is an interesting sort of general trope that I think we might talk oh, about. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, Mark Antony was married to Fulvia, and during the 40s after Caesar's assassination, when Octavian and Antony and Lepidus have formed the first triumvirate, you know, Antony has responsibilities that take him to the east. And at the same time, he has interests in Italy that he wishes to maintain. And his brother, but in particular his wife, act on his behalf. And so while she is given realistically a considerable amount of of latitude compared to what traditionally Roman women were expected to do, because she is acting in the interest of her husband, that legitimates it to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, at the same time, as you mentioned, Fulvia, in terms of criticism, in terms of, you know, abuse, how she is described, uh, it goes well, well beyond what you would expect, you know. So let me ask about that. This was will be sort of an ex nihilo kind of argument, but the sources we're talking about are male authors. Correct. Do you have any idea, is it even reasonable to speculate on whether they are representing a narrow male perspective here and where other women have been like, oh, you know, Fulvia is great. She's like, this is how you do things in ancient Rome as a woman. Or I'm yeah, making well, that we... up completely, but is there any oh, sure. parallel kind of... Well, we don't have any direct evidence from the women themselves. There's some indirect evidence that, that suggests that for the most part, her position was at least tolerated, you know, that she was speaking with authority. For example, at the siege of Perugia, where Octavian's forces are besieging Antony's forces, Lucius is the the commander, but Fulvia is there, right? And so she's there in a a realm that idealized in the Roman world is, is completely masculine, right? So a lot of sling bullets have been found, and these are always, you know, fun to show to students. They've seen ones. What's that? The obscene ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the students are really shocked. And I think the audience for the podcast should go look them up, too. In terms of what's written on there are a lot of insults of the leading figures of the enemies. Right. And so Octavian is mentioned. He's criticized for 
certain sorts of activities that he's supposed to have engaged in. And likewise, that happens with Lucius, who's called out for being bald, right? Fulvia is also named on one of these sling bullets with, well, the sling bullets, a lot of the times what's written on them is like, I'm heading for this, right? As, as it's like a little missile that, that's personified. It's like, I'm heading for this. Yeah, like and, in Nintendo games where they have angry faces or something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like Bullet Bob. And so one of them is, I'm heading for this person's asshole. And with Fulvia, it's like, I'm heading for, and you can kind of fill in the blank, the word I've seen described as so obscene it never occurs in proper Latin writing. Right, only when so, you're trying to so, kill people. Yeah. What's that? Only when you're actually trying to kill people. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's a, it's a street level insult, and the word is uh, landica. Well, so I mean, word this is it, it's it's kind of amusing to think about this when you first encounter it, but it is yeah. also, I think, as you're implying, that means that the that Tavian soldiers are seeing her as an enemy, as a major enemy that is going to be right. attacked by their weapons. Right? That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. In a way, an elevated status, right? taking you seriously enough to want to kill you, to want to make... Right. And and so the soldiers are seeing her as that, you know, certainly Roman women would have seen her as a figure of authority, too, after, I think, the second triumvirate, in order to raise money to fight these wars, they, they're collecting jewelry, I think, from the women of the aristocracy. And in protest these women approach Fulvia instead of proper members of the triumvirate. Right. Right. That's interesting because she is sort of the bridge between being a woman right. and also being exactly. a person in charge sort of in the triumvirate. Yeah. 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 Right. So she is as direct the path for the women to get, for example, but she is also kind of a conduit for Antony's authority when he's not there to speak for himself. Well, then let me ask you, this is a little bit afield, but um, what do you make of the sort of Roman comic trope that women kind of are in charge anyway? We get this in something like Plotus, right? It's usually the women <laughs> yeah. who are running the household because they have the wealth, let's say. Right, right. Um, you also have that, I think it's Seneca makes the joke, like we rule the world, Romans, but our wives rule mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. This is a, a, when you look at like the legal standing of women, this obviously seems ridiculous and sort of a published mm -hmm. thing to say, mm -hmm. but I don't, I'm not familiar with that kind of joke in let's say Greek or let's say Athenian specifically society where women also right. have legal standing. That's a good point. Right. When women are become authoritative, they are sketchy, often like yeah. sexually sketchy, or they're kind yep. of shrewish. They're not actually assumed to be in charge or competent as they are in, in comedy, let's say. So right. is that totally just goofy or is there actually something about Romans that recognize or are Roman women actually more powerful than the Roman laws like to say? I think that you know, they, they do have quite a lot of informal authority, you know, and it, maybe you can trace this back to among the aristocracy, the type of marriage that's that's fairly common, the, the sine manu marriage, where the, the woman remains part of her father's familia, even though she's in her husband's household. And there is a certain amount of latitude that comes with that, uh, particularly when it comes to what happens with the dowry, because if that couple does divorce, and that's not uncommon in Roman society, the dowry's got to be paid back in mm -hmm. a cinema marriage. Radically patriarchal, of course, because it's only by right. association with her paternal household, right. but right. still means that she can push around or throw her exactly. wealth around, I guess, or her dowry. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, something I, 
have used in class on Roman civilization, you know, when we're exploring the powers of the paterfamilias, which are pretty monolithic and pretty extreme. You can just kill a member of the household. Yeah. Right? yeah, they're like, oh yeah, you know, here comes the paterfamilias, watch your step. And, and you know, granted that, that by definition is patriarchal at the same time, you know, take a look at what happens with, with Cicero when Puglia gets married to the labella without Cicero's permission, certainly without his knowledge, right? It's something that uh, Tullia and her mother planned. Uh You know, you see these letters where Cicero is writing back and forth to Caelius to try to negotiate this and think about these suitable candidates. And, you know, she went ahead and did it. Now, it may be a factor that she might be considered more independent because she had already been married. But, you know, what we see Cicero doing is thinking about is this person a suitable match, not only for me, right? Because the, the, the son-in-law would be allied, at least in some way, with the father. But he also says, I like this person, but I don't think Julia can stand this guy, you know? Right, no, that's a good point. I actually do get the feeling from his letters that Cicero really cares about his family and his friends yeah. a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I sometimes wonder if we had like letters of Mark Antony right. at the scale, would we get the same impression of him? Because that's not the sure. impression you get from, you know, externally told histories of many of these other figures. Right. Um, uh, you know, though, it, you know, it's interesting. Hey, Pompey is the example everybody looks to. It's like a, this guy loves is, his wife, loves his wife, loves his wife too much. She leads him around by the nose is the, the, yeah. the kind of corollary of that. But, you know, that makes me think of how Antony is portrayed when he is in Alexandria with Cleopatra. Uh-huh. You mean spin and smitten and capable of self-control and exactly yeah exactly should we read that further back you know with fulvia it's hard to tell because oh right yeah. the words that have survived are, are so so exaggerated right but you're saying in other words like is that just his personality is if he's married to someone he just like sort of follows them around or because he's a centralist or right, something. Yeah. Right. But, you know, getting back to that trope, too, of this is a man who is too influenced by his wife, yet there, at least in the case of Cicero, and I think we can probably extrapolate from Cicero, there is this affectionate bond, certainly between fathers and daughters, that can also exist between hus- husbands and wives. Right. And, and of course, we could this, this would be an interesting thing to pursue about leadership generally, the family metaphor mm-hmm. for, for Romans, right? Mm-hmm. For different peoples, because it looks like, for example, different peoples have different names, paternal or maternal names for their whole country, right? right? There's this like, right. I forget, some anthropologists argue that there's a fundamental difference in the kind of society that sees the homeland as the fatherland versus the mm-hmm. homeland as the motherland. The fatherland mm-hmm. types tend to be expansionist or whatever. Right. In I don't know if that's really true, but I've seen this claim made. Interesting, yeah. And I wonder if there's some similar thing in them. I just remember in one of the jobs I had, the CEO of the small company I worked at, Mm -hmm. basically he would hire people who were a generation younger than him. Okay. And he would kind of have try to have sort of like a dad-like relationship with a lot of the employees. Really? And I don't think it was on purpose. I think it was just Mm -hmm. the guy's personality. And Mm -hmm. in, in tech, there's tons of young people who just like, are interested right. in jobs and right and it ended up being feeling very odd like it felt for me much less like a job and much more like a desire like to be part of a family and i didn't want mm-hmm. that i wanted there to be a job 
-hmm. But this idea of the the leader as a father was very strong Mm -hmm. in that case. Hmm. I've seen other, I've I've worked in another company where the person in charge was a woman and she absolutely, Mm -hmm. she didn't have kids, but she saw herself as a mom figure. And this was a nonprofit and Hmm. said this to her employees, particularly I think her male employees that, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like a mom to you. And I always thought like, I don't, I never understood that, but it was, it's certainly an image that comes up. And for Romans, the figure again of the father, the head of the household, the Mm paterfamilias is Mm -hmm. so strong. I don't actually have a strong sense of that as an image for military leaders though, or for civic leaders in Rome that much, right? I mean, there's there's pater patriae later on, once you get post-Republic. Right. Example that first came to my mind might also, you know, it's early empire, you know, Again, after Augustus's death during these mutinies, when Germanicus parades his son Caligula in front mm-hmm. of the army, and then due to the threat of these mutinous troops, all of the women and all the children of the officers leave. So is, there's that sort of, you know, you're betraying other members of our family. You know, that's a really interesting thought. Can you put some aspect of this is, you know, I'm in, I'm in sort of like a fatherly capacity to you well the, the you know, Patria is like it's the it's the founder though like so like when Camillus right, gets yeah. called that it's not because he's a great leader it's because he kind of refounded Rome against the Gauls right right right, right. so it, it, okay. there, it's more special than I am your father because I care about you it's much okay. more like I have given birth to you as I understand it okay and that's different from like always seeing your boss as your father or something like that right but I'm trying to think. I think Cicero gets that title as well at some yes, point, right? Yep. And that's where I begin to not quite understand it, like hmm. in relation to to Romulus, the, the father of the fatherland. Hmm. Maybe this is because I'm not as positive about Cicero, or because I always felt like so. This is this is in response to the the Catalinarian conspiracy, right, right. where he saved Rome again. Yep. yep. I don't that to me. I, I don't understand that image of him as savior, as father, or something like that. But mm-hmm. maybe I'm not. I always feel I always missing something about that. Hmm. And then it doesn't yeah, seem I like. Haven't... Military commanders. That. That image, should, uh, right? No, 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 no. They don't. I mean, they're brothers. I, I, at, at they're best, brothers. Right? They're, yeah. they're, you know, they're one of the boys, right? Yeah. Thanks very much. This was oh, absolutely thank you. fascinating. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, and thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope to be in touch again. Thanks. In addition to this week's guest, the Leading Thinkers podcast would like to thank Eric Shimalonis, Aisha Champagne, and Malaron Hodge. For more information, please visit Callion.org. That's K-A-L-L-I-O-N.org. Thanks for listening.